Hello and welcome to Disability Movement Etc., a podcast that looks at disability and movement as in sport and disability movement as in social change. I'm John Lepke and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Andrew Colombo Dagavito. Always got to sink that doctor in. <laughs> oh yeah, it's been four years at it. <laughs> On today's episode, we will be talking about our end of year reflections masks in schools, and we have an interview with uh, disabled media and policy person, Peter torres Fremlin. Andy, how are you today? Doing okay. John, I'm in sunny California, so that, that goes for something. But definitely feeling the end of the year coming on strong, so I'm looking forward to taking a couple of weeks off here starting next week. How about you? Yeah, I, I live in a, a, a damn cold climate, which I think the listeners are used to me complaining about. Um, yeah, really, uh, you know, edit, uh, as a freelance journalist, editors and um, writers are sort of on the same slowdown process. So just figuring out with my clients what's happening. And then I have a I have a couple of days. I have a project that I'm, I'm, I'm actually driving out somewhere to do tomorrow. Oh, yes. And then next week is, uh, you know, figure out finalize my expenses for the year, finalize some invoices, all of the, you know, sexy stuff of business ownership. Yeah. So have you got any fun holiday plans? You guys going anywhere? Uh, no. I mean, in previous years, uh, before I moved, you know, uh, earlier in the year, I would have said go and have a big schmozzle of a travel disaster trying to figure out as two people that don't drive um, <laughs> and with two animals you know, going to see family. And now my family's 20 minutes down the road. So that makes oh, life nice. a little bit easier. Um, I think, you know, I've spoken on the podcast before about building routine. Um, and I think being full-time freelance, uh, this is the first time where I am totally in control of the holiday schedule. Um, I, not that I wasn't in my previous gig. So we had time off at, at, at holiday um, and a significant amount of time of it. But uh, yeah, this is the first time where like I was building routines about building stuff earlier in the year. Now I'm building routines about how to slow down because um, I don't know about you, but I am the type of person that gets sick during the holiday season only because my body goes, ah, he's finally slowed down. Let's hit him with everything all at once. Yep. Usually one or both of us catch something. Unfortunately, last year we had caught COVID right at the beginning right at the new year so we started off this year with covid so we're we're trying to finish it off in a much healthier place um there you go which means taking time away and spending time with furry ones and trying to relax and uh i know the dutch have a word for this but i can't remember it's essentially a concept of doing nothing right just kind of sitting and staring at the sky and you know, that's what I'm hoping for for the next couple of weeks. I am a fan of, of those untranslatable words. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's one in um, there's one in Welsh, which is here, I, which the closest you can get in English. And I don't speak Welsh, but I don't think we're at risk of Welsh listeners emailing in to yell at me. No, uh, my family is Welsh. Yeah. Is, um, yeah, here I sort of translates to a longing for home or a longing for belonging, but in a sort of uh, often it's it's like used in a song to be like 
uh, that place that I'm going to return to, and and hopefully for both of us, the place that we're going to return to is a is a place of rest. Although, um, yes, this world yeah. and rest aren't uh, compatible. Something, something, capitalism, something, something. Yeah, yeah. If people right. haven't figured that out about us yet, I'm laying it on heavy. <laughs> yeah. So why don't we jump in with you wanted to talk about masks in schools and how they are returning in some parts of yeah. your uh, the good old US of A. Yeah, it's um you know, these have come up a few times now. I think the C D C in the US is is now actively suggesting people begin masking again, particularly for kids, because I mean, if anybody parents or not, but if you've been an educator or you've worked in and around the school, they, they are breeding grounds for every every type of illness, virus, bacteria, and kids passing back and forth. I mean, that's just the way it is. And I mean, when I was a teacher, it was usually inevitable. My, my immune system tended to be pretty good because I was exposed to it every day, but I, inevitably <laughs> I'd, I'd bring something home and pass it along to my wife who would then be deathly ill. And she's giving me an evil eye from across the room now. Um, but when we think of COVID, I mean, we know how it's passed. Like the other things, you know, flu, we, we can be a little bit more preventative nowadays. Certain um, bacteria, things that, that pass along that way, we can clean. And But it's kind of hard, right? Because kids end up inevitably <laughs> touching something and then touching their face or putting something in their mouth they probably shouldn't have. But we know how COVID passes and you don't need to do any of the other stuff. You just need to be in a room breathing the exact same air as somebody who is actively shedding the virus. And outside of vaccinations, we know that masks are one of the, the biggest preventative measures that we can use in order to keep everybody safe. And it, I mean, I've we've all been wearing them at least... I say all, but many of us have been wearing them consistently for going on three years now. And there's certain spaces now that I feel comfortable to to be unmasked on occasion, right? If I if I'm in a meeting with a group of friends and you know, we kind of know each other's vaccination status, we know nobody's sick, then you know, we don't necessarily need a mask if we're if we're meeting outdoors and, and we're gonna be separated from each other. And again, nobody's actively sick that shows up for these types of meetings. And, you know, we know masks are probably not necessary. But when we go into a space and we don't know, um, we don't know what the vaccination status might be, or we don't know if others are being potentially as cautious as us uh, regarding not showing up to certain event spaces with, with being just a little ill or, you know, having um, just a little bit of a head cold. And when you take that into a school setting, when you throw 30 plus bodies who come from all different types of families, and then you layer on top of that all of the school workers and, and parents who may be coming in and out of the buildings, you know, I thought it was pretty... Um, I thought it was a pretty poor public health message when the CDC reversed their positioning on masks 
was it six months ago or something like that? Um, only to now come around and be like, no, kidding. <laughs> you should wear these now in spaces because guess what? COVID still exists and it's still going to be here. So, I mean, yeah. in, in thinking about how we started this year and how we're ending this year, you know, I hope going into now what will be what the fourth year of COVID being an existence in our, in our human daily lives, like that will just be a little bit more considerate about the broader public concern and particularly for those with, with disabilities because I know we can tie it tie this back to, to the fact that in most spaces that don't require masks now most uh, or many I shouldn't say most but many disabled folks particularly those with chronic illnesses um, or things that may be very impacted by respiratory illnesses how they are again being excluded from certain spaces because of this very, very simple thing that most of us could do. Absolutely. And I, I think in school spaces and, you know, with teachers that are teaching disabled students in these sort of segmented settings, I'm trying to avoid yeah. the word, that, the, the term that American school systems use, but I suppose yeah. I use it because it has been attributed to some of my articles. Yeah, when we're talking about special education teachers, we know both in Canada and the U.S., and I don't know the U.K. data, special education positions are some of the least um, taken up. They are they are very low on the number of teachers that are able to do those um, that that either have the training. Um, Okay. We can put it in the show notes, but when I wrote about it last last year, or perhaps it was the year before, you know, time is a flat, time is a construct. Um, you know, a, a lot of California teachers, for example, that were teaching special education were not in the estimate of the state or in the estimate of researchers actually qualified to do that work. Now we can have a conversation as that article did actually or insider about you know, what does that training actually mean and how can we prioritize disabled lived experience when we're talking about teaching disabled kids? But it is sort of, I mean, not to make too far of a jump, some of those settings, when done poorly, do model that institutional model that the independent living movement has been fighting for. I mean, I did three years of an education degree. You yeah. you actually did the whole teaching thing. Um, now when I'm teaching, it's usually adults. But it follows that that same model. And I think our, our progress when it comes to discussions of public health and kids have left disabled people behind. I don't, I don't think that's a controversial statement, particularly. Definitely um, not, no. And, and I, wonder, I do wonder, and I'd be curious on your thoughts about this, I do wonder... about the backlash, right? Because the CDC has been so wishy-washy over the last eight months. I think some people would say 16 months that, that it, it's, it's difficult, I think, for that trust to be rebuilt within disability community. And, and I do worry about that lack of trust. And I do worry about, I mean, we've spoken about this previously. I also, within this masking conversation, 
worry about the people who have been. I mean, I haven't left my house much, but I'm also in a job where I talk to people all day. Um, I do worry for those people that don't have those interactions and are feeling left behind, not only by sort of the non-disabled know-nothings, <laughs> but also the people in our community who say, for various reasons, ah, fuck it. Yeah. It's, I think you had a lot there. So let's, I'm going to try to break it apart. No, it's okay. It's, it's really the, the way all of this world works, right? Everything is sort of intertwined and interconnected. And hopefully you and I, though we may not be the most qualified, can maybe help folks kind of untangle a little bit here and there. Uh, when we, when we just sort of have our verbal tirades, but, um, <laughs> and it, to get to your, to get to what you said about the CDC, I think you know, for me in the U.S., particularly as somebody who did my doctoral studies, and though I'm, though I wouldn't suggest or, or make the implication that I study infectious disease or or, or that my work is, is at all influenced really heavily by the CDC, I, I always, as an institution, I always sort of looked at the CDC and went, you know, that's a group of scientists who, for better or worse, are really trying to help the world in terms of a broader public health message, right? I mean, it's, yes, the CDC yeah. is, is couched in, in very much a medical model of disability. For many of the things they end up dealing with, they are diseases and, and they should, you know, be treated as such. Like, we, we don't want Ebola around, even though those who have Ebola and, and maybe have impairments after, um, you know, surviving a treatment of it may have disabilities in the end, we wouldn't suggest that, you know, their lives wouldn't have essentially been altered differently had they not had the Ebola in the first place, right? Um, and, and so with, with that understanding, like I, I did always look to the CDC as, as, a, as an institution that for the most part, put science first, right? And I think what became very evident during the pandemic is, and of course, not all people who work in the CDC, but certainly those in positions of power or, or those who are guiding institutional policy, it really became evident how much of a political institution the CDC really is and and perhaps always has been, right that, mm -hmm. that and some, the same way that we've seen that sort of historically tumble with the world health organization i don't yeah. think very many people unless they're trying to convince a, a, a layman public about the value of the who I think most health professionals you'd speak to would cop to the fact that the WHO is is as much a political entity as it is a health one. In the same way that like an EU trade commission is just as much a political machine as it is an uh, uh, an economic one. Yeah, and it's it's kind of <laughs> I mean I don't know what it says about politics, but it's sad that. That when we think of something being political, we just inherently assume that thing may be bad. <laughs> There's a negative connotation to this that that 
politics in most most of our eyes is like, well, you're you're trying to swindle me. <laughs> there's there's something you know you're trying to get me to do that I might not want to do in the first place. And public health can be that, right? I mean, there's certainly, I mean, there are certainly things that public health institutions in the past have advocated for that many people have been like, well, why do I got to do that? What's the point of doing this? When ultimately you're looking at it going, well, here's, here's the data on how it, it might improve quality of life or it might improve it in these other ways. And, and yes, it might be a, a minor inconvenience at the moment for you in your particular uh, situation. But when we look at this thing globally, when we talk about, what do we know, like 8 billion people in the world, and if, if we just sort of take a wild stab and, and use the CDC's own data, to, at least within the U.S., and extrapolate it, that probably somewhere around a quarter of those individuals likely have some form of disability. And, and in certain places, it's probably higher than others. Um, so we're talking roughly about 2 billion people across the globe with a disability or with multiple disabilities. And, and so when there's something that is very beneficial for a broader community, such as mask wearing, that it, it literally takes nothing for people to do it. Um, beyond, you know, there was an initial cost for many of us to buy masks when this all kind of happened. But I think at this point, we all probably have a drawer full of reusable, washable masks. And I know, at least I heard in the U.S., I'm not sure about Canada, where the Biden administration is now revamping or or, or um, relaunching their programs to help pay for COVID home tests, to to potentially send masks to families. So it's... Yeah, it sucks. You know, as somebody who has kind of has a bit of an auditory processing um, issue, when masks are around, I have a hard time following conversations with most people, uh, especially if we're in like a crowded, loud space, such as a coffee shop. Because I, I tend to look at lips and I read word and I, you know, I kind of fill in the blanks and when masks happen, I just started to politely nod along and say, yeah, I, I understood exactly what you said because... You, know, you don't want to have somebody repeat everything all the time. But I think those minor inconveniences really, in, in the stretch of it, are nowhere close to, to contracting or potentially spreading um, COVID, right? And I, mean, I, I don't know if you've had it or not. I've had it once, and it was the most sick I have ever felt. And I still feel like we're dealing with things um, like brain fog and fatigue, and it certainly attributed to the burnout I feel today. And it was 12 months ago. And yeah, like I, I don't want to get it again. <laughs> and, you know, thankfully, I've got a pretty hearty immune system, but I could only imagine if I was somebody with a chronic illness or somebody uh, who, who didn't have that uh, at their disposal. And I mean, even people who do have that at their disposal, like I've had friends who contracted COVID kind of during the first waves and 
a year after they had it, they still were struggling to run a mile down the block without being just completely winded and fatigued. And these are people who I played rugby with, right? And played 80 yeah. matches with. So it's it's a scary thing. And I, I I just hope that in this new year, you know, for, for as much as we can bash in the CDC for flip-flopping and we can joke around and make it memes, you know, I hope people listen and I, I hope people, if they haven't been masking in most places, do consider it. Um, and particularly when we send it to kids. And the kids I've been around, like the kids I've seen who've been, like they get it. They, it's like the mask is not a problem for most of them, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, the little ones, you know, the one, two, three-year-olds, they, they struggle and they're probably the only people in the world that I will look upon and accept if their mask is not like covering their nose or if it's like come off their mm-hmm. chin a little bit. But if you're a grown adult and, and you're not doing these things well, it's like, I don't know, it's just it really, to me, just demonstrates, at least in America, like, you know, I've, I've not been overseas since the pandemics happened. I, I don't know what it's like up in Canada, but at least in the U.S., I mean, it just really, really highlights the, the rugged individualism we, we love to, to espouse and is a part of our national identity here in the U.S. That American exceptionalism. Yeah. <laughs> we keep ourselves sick. <laughs> yeah. Well, you naturally segued us. Um, as we come as we come to a, a close for the year about sort of our takeaways from the year. Um and uh yeah you mentioned the 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 um, the understanding of political identity, like existence as being political. Like when we're talking about being apolitical in these spaces, we're just we're I mean not sound too academic, but from my perspective for me, but uh, I mean, tease academics in my life, but I, I do respect. We need it. We need it. Most of them. Uh, and certainly the one I'm co-hosting with today, I, I respect immensely. But I do think when we're looking at these apolitical things, when we're talking about being apolitical, we're actually being ahistorical. Like, mm-hmm. there is no version of the independent living movement. There is no version of the Black Panthers. There is no version of the Canadian independent living movement. There is no version even of the Terry Fox Marathon of Hope. That isn't political. Yeah, I think I'm going to go off in a little bit of a different direction from my takeaway from the year. I think my takeaway from the year is that we often talk about, well, actually, no, it is tied into political identity. So here we go again. But think at the beginning of the year, if you'd have asked me, is can you use the term disability community and be inclusive? I would have said yes. And I think by the end of the year, I mean, I use disability community so in, in conversation so that people know what I'm talking about. It's not that I don't. But this has struck me that, that our, our understandings of disability communities are far more fragmented then I think we lead ourselves to believe, particularly in the sort of white Western world of disability advocacy. And that's not me saying that black people aren't doing that and BIPOC people aren't doing the work. I'm saying that white people disproportionately decide to take the mic. Um, 
in in particular spaces where they don't need to. Um, I, I think that my takeaway from the year is that in every sector of disability culture, whether that's the art that we create, whether that's the political candidates that get put forward, whether that's the advocacy work happening, you know, across, worldwide in various various areas and with various conversations, that we actually need to be a little bit more specific when we're talking about disability community, whether that's niching down into the parasport, whether that's niching down into a geographical area. And I've always thought that I think that, in, especially in North America, people don't people are shocked and surprised that one one province over in Canada operates differently. And I think that that when you have the capacity or the privilege to be able to have those conversations, I think it's a privileged position to decide to ignore that. I'm not saying everybody has to be interested in collective action. You know, not everybody can start a project like Disability Filibuster around MAID, Medical Assistance and Dying. But I do think that we need to look inward as a set of disability communities. I'm playing around with the term disability diaspora, although because of its, because I'm a white dude, uh, I'm not sure that it fits perfectly. Um, But just this idea that, that we are broader than we think we are even within a geographical center. Like, I mean, we had, uh, we had Dom Kelly on the podcast, right? That's one of the reasons that I asked him, you know, what do people, what do people, you know, get wrong about disability in the South? And it's because we get tied into what disability looks like within our circles. And because travel is more difficult within disability community, even digitally, sometimes, we lose out on those conversations. If I was going to be hopeful about that, because it can't all be depressing and pessimistic. Yeah, we need to end the year on a good note. I think that, I mean, I come from the world of disability art before journalism, right? So I, I think maybe, you know, um, uh, you know, Ryan J. Hadid has a, a, a new show going up, um, Haunted Stories About Disability. Uh, I'm paraphrasing the title. I apologize, Ryan. Um, I interviewed for a story for American Theater. So I know what's happening. Uh, though I didn't report on that a while ago. But I think the conversations that we had, I mean, certainly the book conversations that have been sparked by Alice Wong's Year of the Tiger, you know, all the way through Sam Shock's Black Disability Politics. And uh, uh, is you know um, uh, book the sort of sequel but not sequel to care work the future is disabled. I think that's one area where we can really dig in, and and that's my that's my hope for twenty twenty three, whether that's in media coverage or creativity. Yeah, I think you're right. I've been here in California for a week now. Um, as I mentioned, I think a couple weeks ago on the pod. Um, and I've been doing some work with the Paul K. Longmore Institute on Disability and, and what you said, John, about how disability communities might be more appropriate be, be, because need is often so individualized and there's no group that can account for it. Every possible thing 
that every possible person with a disability or impairment would need. But we definitely aren't going to get anything done unless we start collaborating and connecting and also appreciating when another group may be advocating for something that they need that is that either isn't a priority for the community you might be involved in or might you know you might actually have an opposing view on such a thing um that we're we can't infight you know we we can't constantly critique and fight each other because that's you know we're never going to really address the problem which is the the entire system that is designed actively to exclude disabled folks right the only way we're going to reach a system where everybody has agency and autonomy is if we are working together and we're, we're respecting and understanding differing needs that come from different communities and it's i mean you talk about how one province over People may have entirely different things or that might work entirely differently. I can tell you in the Bay Area alone, like you could go a block over and it's a different group fighting for a different sort of yeah. uh, area or, or there's different things that work. And it, the thing I find that's so cool though is that people, instead of, you know, looking at it in a negative way, sort of in a competitive way, mm-hmm. people build on that, right? Oh, look what, look what this group was able to get done. Let's try to like, you know, piggyback off of that. Let's, let's take that and go to the next step. Or, you know, one of the things that I've, that's become particularly, particularly evident for me about the disabled community is just how punk rock the whole disabled community really is, particularly around the idea of, of just the do-it-yourself-itness, right? Like, yeah, the system doesn't work, so I'm, I'm going to find something that works for me. And, and then people share that, right? And then, you know, you take that from somebody else and you grow with it. And, and that is what I found to be such a wonderful thing, um, particularly with my own exploration of my own disabled identity and stuff like that. Um, just <laughs> literally how, how you show up and, and we were even having a conversation ahead of this, right? Where, you know, I'm tired. You noticed it. You, you, you know, I have depression. So when you ask, you know, you, you're genuinely asking like, Hey, how, how's everything going? But you're also like, Hey, I know those symptoms too, man. Hey, what's, what's really up? And, so no, and not. Yeah, and, and you, there isn't a, a you know, it's a, I don't know, I guess it's just a, it's a feeling of being seen, I think, that, that perhaps many folks have experienced when you finally are like, okay, this, this isn't the negative bad thing I've been told and taught and reinforced through my entire life. And, oh, there's other folks, and they might have different needs, or they might have... Um, of course, they have wildly different experiences and privileges and, and, and the whole gambit. But they also understand the disability piece of having, basically having to fight for existence, right? And, and I know we've 
we've joked, and that's sort of our dark, sarcastic comedy that we need to get through our years and daily lives. But, you know, really, like, the disabled community just, um, you know, it is political. Like, just, mm-hmm. just existing in a space, even if we try, and I, as an academic, I, I have been in plenty of conversations, I go to plenty of spaces where people really, really, really try to not or say they're not being political, but, you know, advocating for appropriate free public education, unfortunately, is a, is a political standpoint. Advocating for, you know, the ADA to be corrected, uh, correctly enforced and, and implemented, that's a political opinion. And it, <laughs> I, I think, I hope my peers as scholars, but others who are not academic scholars, but just scholars in general, really acknowledge that in the coming years. I, I plan to try to as well. Yeah. I've got some fun stuff lined up for the future, for the, uh, for the future yeah. upcoming year that's really, uh, really exciting for me. And just, yeah, it's, it's going to be fun. But yeah. After the break, we'll hear from Peter Torres Fremlin, who works in disability advocacy and policy and also runs a really valuable newsletter called the Disability Debrief, um, talking about issues facing the disability community, not only in the places that we so typically hear about it, but also in places that we certainly need to hear more from. Today's sponsor is KitCaster. Did you know that podcasts are a great way to grow your personal and business brand voice? Here's a secret. We all want to feel connected to the brands we buy from. And what better way to humanize a brand than through sharing your story on a podcast? KitCaster is a podcast booking agency that specializes in developing real human connections through podcast appearances. If you're an expert in your field, have a unique story to share, or an interesting point of view, it's time you explore the world of podcasting with KitCaster. You can expect a completely customized concierge service from the staff of communication experts. KitCaster is your secret weapon in the podcasting business. Your audience is waiting to hear from you. Go to kitcaster.com backslash dismove, etc. to apply for a special offer for the friends and listeners of this particular podcast. Welcome back to Disability Movement Etc. I'm John Lucky, and I'm here today with Peter Torres-Fremlin. Well, for you, good afternoon, Peter. Hi, John. Good morning. How are you doing? (laughs) I'm good. Uh, Cold as it may be on the Canadian prairie. Thanks for joining me today. And uh, I I thought maybe with our discussion today, we could start with the question, uh, you know, can you tell me a little bit about how we come to share space here today. No, thanks. Um, thanks so much, Sean. It's always good to it's always good to chat with you. Um, well, I think we we share space thanks to thanks to Twitter um, and our interest in 
disability issues, but I think we also vibe out on um, both being physically disabled guys with uh, critical mindsets. Um, that's one way to put I it. I think that's, yeah, I think that's <laughs> what, um, what I like to tell people, John, like, I mean, like the, the, like people look at the disability and then they think they know what your problem is, but like, <laughs> that is disability is often not, not necessarily the serious issue. No, but jokes, um, uh, jokes aside, um, uh, we, another connection we have is this interest in disability media as well, which you've been in for much longer. And I do disability debrief, which started out as an online newsletter. And maybe now I'm calling it an online magazine to keep, keep up to date on disability issues around the world and how the world is changing for disabled people and how we're changing it right back. You know, you mentioned that I've been in media for quite a while, but you've been in policy for much longer than I've been in media. So can you tell me a little bit about about that work and, and what brought you to the newsletter or the online magazine? Yeah, thanks. Um, thank you. Thank you, John. I did. Um, well, as you know, sort of uh, disability doesn't necessarily automatically lead you on to disability issues. But through a series of accidents and connections with disabled people, um, primarily when I was um, living in abroad after I'd left the after I'd left the UK, that led me to study disability issues um, when I was in Brazil, and it got under my skin, and I saw how um, disabled people meeting and connecting and whatnot um, could really change the situation of people, and that led me to work in international cooperation. So um, uh, richer countries giving money to two programs and policy in poorer countries to support the rights of disabled people and to bring uh, approaches to inclusion. So I started work in Bangladesh um, with various places working uh, with a couple of different UN agencies. And that took me into, as you say, working, working in policy very, very much, John, to use technical term, at a blah, blah, blah level, um, <laughs> getting into uh, the kind of UN meetings in Geneva and all of this kind of thing. Very compelling, uh, very sometimes useful, sometimes not. I mean, good luck. Good luck to know the difference. and. Then John, I got into the that that's came out in a newsletter because in disability policy we've kind of got two challenges. We've got we don't have enough information, but as with so many other spheres in our life, we've got too much information that we can't make sense of. Right? There's always new new reports and new documents coming out, and we're not reading them, and we don't know what's in them, and we feel guilty about it. And so I felt guilty. So I was like, well, if I put it as a list of links and newsletter to send it to my colleagues, I'll feel less guilty and they can deal with it. <laughs> um, and so it came, it came out of that, which was actually also, it showed that I was more on social media than my colleagues because I was seeing this, I was seeing these links. So I turned that, um, I turned that into a virtue. Um, 
by being able to gather and curate information and then like gathering and sharing the news then led me to see the gaps in the news. And that then led me to try and fill fill the gaps is the um, uh, long way around of how I got that. That's a lot of information I appreciate. Um, you mentioned you know, being being in Brazil, spending some time abroad. In your work, what do you think when we're talking about disability movements that sort of wider disability advocacy gets wrong about the work happening in places like Brazil? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, the influence of disability movement in the U.S. Um, has been extraordinarily strong. So there's a lot of credit there. And in the UK as well, we often, I mean, especially when we're speaking English, we're talking about models that might have come, come out of the UK and whatnot. And still, when you look at the news, just, and I, I can't even get out of this, just there's so much more from the US and the UK than, than other places. So it, it really, uh, twists the center of gravity too much on disability issues. I think we kind of get a few things. We make a few assumptions wrong. First is make this assumption of progress that the US and the UK and whatever other Western country you might be looking at is, is more advanced on inclusion than other issues. And now we kind of have to separate out like, oh, yes, maybe you have a more advanced uh, legal framework and you have more advanced services, but actually that that feel of inclusion in that day-to-day interaction between people isn't necessarily there. One of the strongest learnings I took from my time in Bangladesh, and it's a really important one to carry forward in inclusion, is that you can make a lot of change with very few resources, right? Some people are waiting to, like, oh, I will be inclusive when I am rich, oh, I will be a good employer when I have as much money as Microsoft, right? Uh, but there's lots of things that you can do, you can do before then. And that was one of those really key, the key lessons for me. And the other, uh, challenge we have is that, um, like in, in accepting diversity in the movement of, of approaches and language to how we do things. I think there's quite strong models and disability communities in the US and UK of how to speak about things and how to approach things. Even if you look at the difference between whether we should say disabled people or people with disabilities, um, you, you can talk about as that as if there was one right answer, which is, um, I, I don't quite necessarily agree that there would be one right answer, but then that is maybe unhelpful when you plug that into a global context, especially maybe where you started with, with disproportionate power. So there's, um, there's a lot to be gotten from de- trying to decenter our view, um, learn how different people have approached things in different places and use different, different words and descriptions for doing so. Yeah, I think I, I most commonly saw this or most recently saw this around the um, discussions around UN Day and um, UN International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And I saw a number of academics and, um, you know, I'm doing my MFA, so I don't want to pretend that I'm not part of that world, but um, I'm peripherally part of that world where people are like, well, I see UN Day and they use person first language in that 
that like derails all our work we do in community. And I was like, in what community and in what way and how, you know, I, I, as you said, the, the, the thing that I often come back to is like, we can't, we can't model our way out of oppression. Like models are helpful, but they have their limitations. And I, I just find this endless, this endless discussion about identity first versus person first to be like people use different things. People who would normally align, like I do a lot of Paralympic reporting, a lot of the um a lot of the athletes, if you like laid out what a disability justice framework is, would be like, yeah, I agree with all of those. But I like person first language because that's what I grew up with and that's what makes me feel centered in my disabled body or brain. Yeah, Jenny, it's 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 a lot of it's a lot of thorny issues. I think we should really also respect people that are making that argument and they're raising serious points um about what is there. I sort of play maybe I'm not seeing the nuances, but I think that actually the persons with disabilities and p- disabled people, they're both motivated and justified by the same thing that they're both saying, look, saying it this way will bring attention to the social factors. That's why when I do my international policy work, um, there are some people that I work with that I have to say persons with disabilities, because that's what's in the UN convention. From their point of view, then disabled people is a bit of a divergence for that. But if, say, in the UK context or some other US context as well, I say I don't say disabled people, then that appears very off and it appears that I'm not, I'm distancing myself from that community. So this is definitely a challenge we have. And I think then obviously the bigger challenge is even outside of that term that we now talk about 15% of the world's population as disabled people or people with disabilities or whatever whatever we want to, uh, whichever phrase, but the majority of that population do not identify as such. So. Like I think our bigger challenge is maybe the one we talk about less of how to get that term more or that term or our way of looking at things or the tools we have and the connections we have, the identities, et cetera, all of that to the wider population that we we see as people with disabilities. There should be a swear jar every time on this podcast every time I bring up parasport, but I'll say it anyway. I think maybe when we last chatted, I brought this up. You know, one of the things that that really frustrates me around our discussions around the global south and disability is things like if you look at uh, maybe not now, I'm maybe a little bit out of date. But if you look at the rosters of certain uh, parasport teams, you can chart sort of the the levels of inequity in a very minimal sense alongside the diagnoses of those who are existing in those spaces. If you look at some of these wheelchair rugby rosters, particularly because it's quads, so you get to see some some deep things. You know, in, in, in the UK, you know, in the global north, you will see a lot of, you know, various forms of meningitis and, and uh, you know, uh, spinal cord injuries from, from car crashes, which, uh, uh, you know, a sport friend of mine once called getting injured the traditional way. Um, 
But then if you look at the global south, you will see, you know, I haven't been there, I haven't reported on this, there are people who are better at this, but there are people with, you know, diagnoses of polio, for example, playing these sports. And it, it strikes me that that's just a conversation that we don't have enough when it comes to disability movement, that we that we sort of hyper-focus on the, well, of course, when most of the discourse is happening on social media, it becomes the, those, with the, those with the tools. I'm curious if there are thinkers in the global South when it comes to disability, and I, I don't mean thinkers in terms of just like the super academic lens or the super, you know, specific, oh, they must have a book published. But, you know, people that you look towards for those conversations about disability outside of that very, you know, UK, US, Canada spectrum. No, thank you. I also wanted to sort of reflect reflect on the first part of what you're what you're saying as well and the differences of the disability experience um across different countries. So you said about the types of the types of impairments people come with and what you see. I think it's also extremely striking the types of social social barriers. So when I started working in Bangladesh and met disabled people that were, this really brings to home the social model a lot, that uh, their physical impairments eh, was much less uh, intense than mine, but their social exclusion that they'd faced was much more severe. They'd been, they'd had to leave school because of bullying. They hadn't been able to, to get into work They'd maybe been isolated from the community and their families. So that was a real difference. And when I started there, it's like, I was like, oh, no, am I, am I sort of disabled in, uh, in comparison? These comparisons aren't helpful and they're not definitely not the, the end of the day is like I say, there's not a sort of better or worse model that we can, we can apply uniformly. Um, who's then sort of maybe, Ten years later, I can see ah, oh, there's some elements of social inclusion that they've they've sorted out a bit better than we have, and um, we deal with different set of different set of challenges. Um, in terms of the thinkers that I look to, I get really inspired by um, the sort of people making activism and movement. And people that have, um, people that have fought a lot to, to make change with very few resources. Um, this year I interviewed Bargavi Davar and Abnerman Lapaz on my, um, on my newsletter. Bargavi, Bargavi in India is, is sort of thinking about communities and mental health and how to escape and, uh, resist traditional and colonial notions of care uh, in a way that blew my mind. She was like, ah, oh, look, my pillars of work are Buddhism and the CRPD. And I'm like, what? Or like, how did Buddhism interact with the rights of people? It is really, isn't it? UN Convention, I've never heard that before. And she, she, she got into it. That really blew my mind in the Philippines. Abna, he's a bit of a joker. He, he's been causing, like, I mean, he's been thrown out of uh, the boarding institution that he was in for disabled people. My made, kind of person. Exactly. Our kind of guy. 
Let, I, the title I went for that was like, quote, I'm not rebellious, Abnaman Laba's lifelong rebel. Also, <laughs> also, also kind of guy that do do not not do that. Um not say it. He like, I mean, his his level of hustle and fight and the tactics that he used, um, the tactics that he uses to influence government and to be really passionate about change and somehow. Like in in this kind of international cooperation, you've got to kind of like please the donor that's giving you money on one side, and like fight the fight you need to fight on the other, and and navigate all the politics around that. Um, and there's so many more in the movements that I've met that just sort of like leave me so bored with what they've what they've accomplished, how they fight, um, how they really insist on rights and have made an ambition for a world to be different. Um I'm I'm not so good on the academics. There certainly there certainly are some, but the people that, that I've mainly worked with and come across are these um these people working more in the movement or policy or activism spaces. Absolutely. Thank you for those names. And uh, I'll I'll steal links from your from your newsletter to put in the show notes. I think and correct me if I'm wrong, because obviously you've done this work when I haven't. But it feels like much like other movements, there's sort of this risk. And I think we talked about it a little bit earlier of disability advocates or policymakers or however we want to conceive of change makers, maybe in places like the UK, US, Canada going to these places and and sort of being a little bit like the crip version of um of missionary work like i'm going to come and bring you the social model or i'm going to come and bring you uh you know these wheelchair parts but you'll never be able to find the parts again so i've i've just i've just given you a a metal frame that will go down for generations but never be able to fix do you know that sort of thing from your vantage point, how does that work when we're talking about international cooperation between disability? Because let's face it, North America and the UK kind of end up siloing themselves a lot of times in these conversations, I think. How do we do that work equitably? Yeah, John, that isn't, um, I would say, a solution that I found given the um, disproportionality of power. I think. A lot of this applies to the these kind of cooperation initiatives in general um that really bring in uh, a sort of a based on a white white saviorism uh approach that the external aid will make the difference. The sector is currently like quote unquote looking at decolonizing, but like ultimately its initiatives coming from the richer countries and um, being done in the poorer countries and the donors do not want to give up uh, decision-making power. They don't want to do, they don't want to give money and say, do what you like, you know best. Um, they want to be like, uh, well, do what you'd like, but you have to follow our framework and our, our reporting things. And then like, uh, you, well, you have to give us a report in English as well. And by the end of the day, there are there are some people doing this differently. I think if you um see the works of Disability Rights Fund, they're definitely trying to do this, do this differently and trying to support grassroots 
organizations in the global south. So there's that's that's the element of how this work is delivered. I don't want to say this is this is how all disability works happens. So like disability work happening through other means, sort of through exchanges or culture exchanges, sport, then might be an interesting way that it can there's there's different avenues. Um there's so many ways that the countries are progressing outside of these frameworks. Um but that that was one element. The other element is like, how do we think change happens, right? Uh I think we've often kind of seen like uh, the US model of change was, which is perhaps not doing it justice, but there was, look, the ADA came and then that made people behave differently. And then that changed attitudes towards disability. That's kind of often the implied model, which doesn't quite do justice to what happened in the States, but also maybe isn't as relevant in, in countries that are not as legally obsessed as the states that do not sort of, um, we're going to like sue each other until we're better culture, right? Um, <laughs> not everyone, not every country has that, has that uh, model. Another factor that we, um, we have this convention on the rights of people with disabilities, one of the most uh, rapidly adopted UN conventions, really powerful and important document. But it is it is a kind of um it's a central reference that kind of get imposed gets imposed so if you look at like what we what we look for in say organizations of people with disabilities we then like looking for them to be representative and that might push them in a different mode where they might have sort of uh, been started in a kind of mutual aid kind of way that are providing services so we're kind of from the outside, we say, ah, oh, look, we'll give you money if you do X, Y, or Z in this way. So these kind of, it's this real, there's real structural challenges to this. In, in my personal life, I wasn't able to solve these problems. One of the most deeply inequitable things through the sector is people get paid different amounts based on where they're from. Uh, so as a quote unquote, like international advisor, consultant, or staff, I would get paid in, in pounds or dollars or euros. And if I were a um, a person working in my country of origin, that would say Bangladesh or India or, or wherever, I'd be paid in that local currency and probably a lot less, right? right. So that is profoundly inequitable. And I wasn't able to get out of that myself because I, I I like I love the I'll be honest I love the dollars and the euros and the pounds right and and to live to live in the UK which is uh, one of the richest countries in the world um, I need I need that and I'm sort of looking to maintain maintain that privilege um, so that's a kind of really difficult issue one thing that I did go further to trying to solve John I gave a lot of attention to language learning. And a lot of attention to trying to understand the cultures that I was in. And one of the other defects of our sector is very much a fly in, fly out, superficial approach. And I did some of that. Um, uh, but I really tried to base my work on understanding and having deeper, more long term relationships than some of the project based assignments permitted. Yeah, it strikes me when you're talking about the legalistic framework of, of places like the U.S., where I would imagine, and I'm okay with sounding like, you know, the 
the ignorant dual citizen that I am between like Canada and the UK, but that that you know, for example, a disability framework in the American conception, you know, doesn't uh, doesn't intersect well with things like caste systems in a number of countries. Like these legal frameworks are not the same, and these social frameworks are not the same, and it's sort of this predominantly white saviorism, as you said, of I, I you know, I shall go, uh, I shall go preach my my way of being when when the foundation of that is comparatively um, economic security. Yeah, and we're just a different a different place of legal instruments in people's day to day lives, right? Like that if you've got a culture where you make a law and then you put a lot of investment into following the law and people can sue anything from a small kind of business on the corner to a huge company or a government a government agency if they don't follow it. Uh, that, that creates a very different environment when the law is kind of a bit more mm-hmm. uh, a recommendation <laughs> uh, and and doesn't have those mechanisms mechanisms for for follow up um, and for kind of being being more tangible. It also maybe John overlooks like the way things that did actually happen in the U.S. and the extensive social mobilization that was there, the extensive coalition building. And it's kind of focusing, like, maybe very much on the results of that rather than, like, what brought it about. Because that, I think, is much more generalizable that, ah, like, mobilizing disabled people really, uh, really changes things for them. And then they take that change to other people. Um, and they take that forward in that, in that context. And then those, those connections between disabled people and other social movements also really transformative so we we kind of got got a bit sort of focused on transfer transferring like the result rather than transferring what was underneath i want to shift for a moment uh and, and i appreciate the time that you know you've uh you've given to uh, a little bit more about a disability debrief you mentioned earlier that you know you you <laughs> i think you said out of guilt you wanted to you know Kind of put these links together and put, you know, very easy for policy to stay behind and decisions to stay behind closed doors and things like that. Um, I read recently and, and correct me if I'm wrong in your in your one of your most recent posts that you're now over 1800 subscribers. Can you tell me a little bit about the growth of of the newsletter, the online magazine and, and sort of what your what your goals are at the minute? Yeah, thank you, John. So it started out for my colleagues. And I was even a bit insecure when sort of quote unquote regular people, like people not working on disability issues, started reading it because I thought I have to make something different, like it's two different audiences. But then I realized like like slowly is that, well, what are we doing in policy? We talk about it in very boring ways, um, but we are looking at how social change happens, right? Which is a lot of what we've just been talking about. And that is really interesting. So if there was a way to communicate that more engagingly, then that would be interesting, both for the specialist audience that is working on it day in, day out, as well as for like someone that's curious, willing to give a bit of time and is interested in social change around the world. 
So that's really what I've shifted to. I've tried to shift to that. And it is, um, I am really lucky to have found a style of writing that can appeal to both audiences. So just sort of a random example, earlier in the year, I also um, did a bit of a reflection on some of my own my own experiences in hospital and a bit of disability drama in my own life. And that resonated with people, um, both in the sense of, oh, I've got a relative in hospital. Oh, I'm in hospital. I'm having an operation. That resonated with me or that that helped me see how I talked to a doctor. And people that are working on inclusive health and sort of how to change health systems and whatnot. And I think that's um, that's a kind of really like wonderful way to kind of be able to connect lived experience and policy questions and communicate that in like a way that tries to be non-boring, right? And to some extent, uh, succeeds. Peter, did you just call policy boring? Do we get that on record? Yeah, I did. I did. I... I did try. It's, it's boring. It's boring on on purpose. Unfortunately, the way it's written, like I find it very interesting. Like like I say about how we how we make change and like when we like that thing that I said about oh you've got a situation where laws aren't necessarily being followed. I'm like, well, say so it really does interest me. Like so, well, what should you put in the law that's different that might make it followed a bit more? But it can. It's very. It's very dry. It's very, it's very detached from lived experience and people's day to day concerns, um, which is, which is really, um, a sort of a tragic thing because it's such an important element of change. Um, so now the newsletter is growing. It's getting to more, more people. It's used by people in, in governments and in, and in civil society that are working on disability all over the world. I was really, I just made a new website and it's really like sort of taken aback to see it's had visitors from 120 countries. So I'm really like loving that I can get that work to people in different places. And um, yeah, I really want to double down on this for for next year because I think that um, like a focused disability media can really contribute to the change we're making and contribute to tackle some of the most serious problems we have. Yeah, I, I mean, of course, I'm biased, but I, I totally agree with you. I'm looking at, um, don't worry, I'm not going to plug my own thing. But if I look even in the UK, at, um, and apologies for forgetting the, the name of the person who runs it, you'll know about it probably instantly, but um, uh, things like Disability Newswire, um, some stuff over here as well. Uh, um, uh, the unwritten when you're looking for some op-ed work, Rachel Charlton Daily, uh, Limping Chicken and uh, Liam O'Dell's work. Like, it's an exciting time for disability media. Um, and you and I have chatted about this. I, I think that the way to take the way to take these stories away from that dryness or even the dryness that I see in some media coverage insofar as it is that the narrative of like, we're either these super crips, I'm obviously not the first person to bring this forward, far from it, but super crips or we're like the tragic cripples in the corner. I, I find that equally as dry as a dry policy document because I, I don't see the humanity in that. I, I, I empathize with it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, um, 
I didn't I didn't even get into that side about the the mainstream coverage of disability issues, but all of these you just sort of um listed out a series of uh really important initiatives that are giving us like doing this thing of empowering us with information and perspectives and doing a thing of being based on um I don't know quite how to put this, but based on people's lived experiences, but it's it's not exactly that. It's like telling telling stories from our point of view. One of the things that I've tried to push people like to to kind of broaden their perceptions of is like when we talk about disability news, we very easily can get focused in on oh maybe it's about benefits, maybe it's about assistive technology, maybe it's about sort of parasport. But um, disability news is a way into understanding like the broader issues that are going on this this year on the news that I've written about artificial intelligence. I've written about ancient Egypt. Like disability is a kind of window into into all of these things and more. We're doing a, a focus on climate change and people with disabilities. We have a series by Onye Kale Costello on the debrief about that and sometimes friends not in disability they ask me Oliver, what's like climate change got to do with disability and i think that's a really important question everything yeah exactly because it shows that like hang on like what do you think climate change was um because if you're not quite if you're not understanding it as a social issue then you're sort of maybe missing out a huge dimension of the impact that it's gonna have and then if you're not linking that to to disability, then that's a sort of big, um, another big step to make in understanding like the current alignment of our society. So that's um, that's the other exciting thing about disability news, and that's why getting getting our own our own platforms and whatnot, and and ability to articulate these things and and audiences, um, and of course the investment in it. Um, Will really, will really help us make those connections and connect the sort of people that are maybe isolated and living through some of these experiences alone or trying to work on it, but not having the information that backs them up uh, and, and be a hub that, that serves all of those audiences. I'm about to ask an ignorant question about disability policy. Uh, so fair warning. Do you find, you know, because one of the critiques we find in certainly parasport and sort of the nonprofit sector generally, I'm sort of arbitrarily splitting apart the domestic nonprofit sector from the international one. One of the critiques we see there is that it's largely not disability led. Does that, was that true in your experience? Does that impact the way that you see policy, you know, implemented and talked about worldwide when it comes to disability? Yeah, for sure, John. And you're you're asking quite a spicy question in a supposedly neutral <laughs> way, um, because this is this is very contentious. Like at every level, from are you going to panel discussion, and then you're like, "There's no disabled people on the panel." Sorry, no, that's fine. That's choice of a podcast. That's my complaining voice. I don't think that's every not, time that's, I'm annoyed with somebody, they get the Monty Python treatment. So you're you're fine. That that's not how disabled people <laughs> speak, John. You shouldn't generalize. Uh, there's um everything from just a panel discussion or who's highlighted and kind of questions about what is their disability status 
to these much broader questions of how you get in representativity and whatnot. I kind of already mentioned the slightly sort of top-down nature of the international cooperation. There's that like people giving out the money then get really disproportionate influence over the decisions and the recipients are kind of second thoughts. There is, we are making, uh, like I would say we're making a push, but um, that's perhaps an overstatement. We are increasingly aware of the need for um, more leadership by disabled people. Currently in international cooperation, that is strongly associated with organizations led by disabled people themselves. So we call it a quote-unquote representative organizations of disabled people, and that's already like a first um a first question like whether whether like an organization set up by a disabled person is necessarily representative of the broader population but they are a way in that we've got in some ways in international cooperation the disability movement is much more ahead of this than some other identity movements that haven't necessarily focused so much on on that aspect of like having leadership from that community. But John is still um is still a million miles from where it should be. I think that just sort of quote unquote involving a representative organization does not solve the problem, did not shift power. It's um sort of that there's so many uh forms that there can be of superficial participation, I think. Um, the the initial response to the COVID nineteen pandemic by countries around the world was quite distressing in how rapidly uh, some of those mechanisms were forgotten about, and then on the other side, heartening as then sort of uh, that disabled leadership um, then came back stronger. But I think we kind of have real real questions here that we haven't examined enough about what does representation mean? And that's an extremely deep question that is challenging our democracies as a whole, right? Like that um whether it's the US or the UK, again to focus on our favorite favorite countries um that we're mentioning a lot. Screw Canada. Exactly. They're both um <laughs> they're both um thank you for saying it, John. Um no you're good. Uh they are both really struggling on the quote-unquote representative democracy and how that works for the general population. Like, And so we, we're kind of dealing with a microset of that problem and how to make policies and services that treat a group that really have incorporated the input of that group. And that, um, like I was saying in some of my own disability drama, like you feel every time you speak to um a fucking doctor, right? Like every time you speak to a care professional that like you can see them making decisions or taking a point of view that is is not was like you just sort of you feel your control suddenly suddenly taken away from you. And I d I don't think we've we've been able to understand what the solutions are enough because it's such a challenging problem. And I don't think personally, and this is maybe a bit more controversial, I don't necessarily think the entire answer is found in representative organizations, because in lots of places they aren't there, in lots of places those representative organizations are not reaching everyone. And in lots of places we just see in practice 
that individuals with disabilities or groups of individuals with disabilities have raised in voice in such an important way and made really important contributions without sort of being quote unquote uh, representative or having mechanisms for that. Um, so there needs to be a lot of creativity at every level from how you make a law to how a government department decides a policy to how you give a service to how someone like goes to your house or meets you in the hospital and interacts with you at every level. There needs to be a lot more attention to how uh, the sort of disabled people that these things allegedly involve um, can uh, can express express their agency choice and preferences. Yeah, I, I find that when we talk, we start talking about representation, I'd be curious in your thoughts on this. Like disability movements, even in the you know the I don't want to say even in because you know at at some point you have to start talking about a rotten core of these things, but you know, UK, US, and Canada. Part of my frustration, we talked about academics earlier and, and sort of the, the ways in which that influences policy and these discussions that we have in disability community, finally disproportionately leave behind intellectually and developmentally disabled people. I find that they disproportionately focus on you know, the, the, the disability advocacy space in Canada and in large segments of the US is atrociously white. <laughs> and, you know, if you ask somebody like, oh, I don't know, Leroy Moore was tweeting about it yesterday, one of the founders of, uh, you know, disability uh, justice with Sins Invalid saying, well, hang on, why are, why, why are the mic always being handed to this one version of identity? And we've, we've bullshitted ourselves. I'm paraphrasing Leroy. I know you didn't say bullshitted yourselves, but we've bullshitted ourselves into this idea that, that, that's representative that like that like disability in Saskatchewan only where I am only looks like me, which is complete bullshit. Or it only looks like it, you know, I, I keep saying mid 20s, I'm 29. So late 20s, <laughs> you know, dude in a wheelchair when we know that that's not that's not that's just not fucking true. John, for for sure, and I think gender is also pretty pretty big issue there. But men with disabilities have so too often dominated these spaces. Um, uh, like this isn't an excuse, but a context that uh, people representing kind of any uh, like identity issue are put in a very awkward place by the majority community because it's then like oh hey you like you look like you're one of them come and but you're not too threatening come be our cripple in the corner exactly yeah ex exactly um and so like obviously being called to be put into that position you have to then make you have to then try and sort of make a shift um so there's a lot you can do if you're in that situation to make that shift but ultimately is like the way that um, dominant society is then like trying to interact with these issues. It's looking for like the one voice. It gets a bit upset when like like a disabled person, two disabled people have like more than one opinion. That's that's then a bit upsetting. It's like, what if you can't agree that like how do I know what to do? 
Why do you people conflict? Why is there? I know this yeah. this term is contested in terms of who came up with it, but I'm just going to credit it to Liz Jackson because that's where I first read it. You know, this idea of, of axis friction. Like, how can we how can we believe that we're going to have sort of one true version of disability liberation? One, you know, that we can all agree on when we can't agree on anything. And and like disability culture is like beautifully messy. But then when we get into these advocacy spaces, sometimes I think we 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 fight towards an end that isn't there. Because like if you and I shared space, we never have. I'm sure we'd have conflicting access needs and we're, I would say, generally on, on the same wavelength politically. Yeah. Um, and it's sort of, I would also maybe say in some of the issues that I have raised before that um, the majority of disabled people are not identifying with this um, with this movement in an explicit way. And so how you then uh, be representative of that and be one of the be where we are, which is we're seeing like a sort of disability pride angle as well. And we're trying to shift things in that way. How you connect that to the the broader population is really difficult. This is really sort of difficult in another dimension in terms of age that um older older persons are going to be acquiring different types of disabilities but are not necessarily going to jump on the disability bandwagon that is not necessarily going to be a comfortable identification for them um, or, or a welcoming one, uh, but they're facing a lot of disability issues. So yeah, it, it's it's a, a deep challenge for us. Yeah, certainly the, um, I think we certainly saw this with COVID where there was this conflict um, and again, slightly biased and taking on this topic in that I reported on it, but uh podcast isn't all about me, Peter. But the 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 conflict that appeared within these activism spaces around people coming to a disability identity actually very quickly, comparatively, with long COVID, not the sort of slow burn of, of some disabilities that we see. Um or in fact the sort of very quick um snap of your fingers that we see with some other you know, conversations around injuries or coming into community where there was this conflict between long COVID folks who hadn't, who hadn't, um, didn't have contact. And then a disability community saying, longstanding certain portions of the disability community saying, well, hang on, we've been doing this work for 30 years. Don't like long COVID isn't the first thing to be understudied. Long COVID isn't you know, COVID isn't the first mass disabling event. You know, what about us? You've forgotten about us. And the, and the sentiment of like, you've forgotten about us until you've become one of us, right? This idea that like, disability is undefeated. I'm curious how that conflict and, and you spoke to it. So, you know, uh, no need to rehash old ground if it feels like old ground, but how those conflicts between what is perceived as disability play out when we're talking about like, policy writing even, or the, or the documents that you were tasked with with putting together? Yeah, those, um, the, whatever framework you're making has to somehow navigate the, like, who's disabled question, right? And um, it's, it's very difficult. 
Um, it's policed from both sides, right? So both from within the community and from outside the community, people and, and people in the middle of them either maybe insisting that they're not or they are. Um, I think sort of uh, like implicit in your question as well is a lot of questions about how identity is played out in in social media, which is where we live a lot of our lives and perform perform and claim these identities and the spaces the spaces that are there. Um, but sort of like right now, I'm working with a big organisation sort of how to give um, adjustments to staff with disabilities. Right in the workplace, and you're like, oh, is it just the staff with disabilities? Like, how are you going to check that they have a disability? And I'm like, I'm trying to make it like, and the health conditions, and 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 and, and they're trying to make it like, no, look, it's just about disability. And then they're trying to say, like, and then you're going to get into that qualification of it that that also applies when you're sort of giving out benefits or supports. Um, is there's then so much pressure and you can then spend a lot of sort of time and money doing quite a bad disability identification that then creates a lot of discrimination as well. So are the, those discussions very much played out um, played out on on every level and um, I like um, I, I I sort of, personally would uh like to distance like myself from those discussions of policing because I don't have very good answers for them. I don't want to be involved in assessing whether someone is like quote unquote disabled enough to get the benefit. I don't want to sort of help an employer like decide exactly what hoops someone has to jump through. You don't exactly want to give the employer a uh hand up when it comes to um sidestepping the equality act in the uk which has enough enough attacks happening against it at the minute well yeah for 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 instance um like sort of yeah sort of giving like i don't want to design that little like the shape of whatever door that disabled people have to contort themselves to go through to get access something that's supposedly about equality um i much prefer to be on the side that can talk about it as as a sort of broad amorphous i really liked you calling it you calling it messy um and and not uh not have to police um who gets to call themselves what and and sort of just just maybe just a final point on that is that in different contexts and it can be a different answer, right? Like your assessment for your benefit, what you say in the census, what your employer does, what you say online, they can be different. They can be different answers. And what you said online, like one day might be a different answer from the next day. Um, and that, like the fact they can be different answers is kind of not under-recognized by these discussions. And that, that does in part like contribute to make them more, more fractious. Yeah, the line I was always given growing up was, or, you know, it's one of those things where you, you d- you've you used it so many times you don't remember its origin, but I just know that it happened sort of pre-18 at some point was, are you using the label or is the label using you? 
you know, like if I need to say that I, if I need to tell, you know, if I need to tell a medical practitioner, I, they ask, are you disabled? And I go, yeah. And they go, okay, what type, even if I don't think it's needed, if I think that's going to get me better, med better medical care, then you bet your ass I can spit out, you know, I have cerebral palsy, spastic diplegia with a hint of ataxia. Yes, it sounds more like an Italian dish than a diagnosis, right? And we all laugh and joke, and hopefully I don't have to yell at them for pain medication. But I can also put, you know, like, again, not doing the neurodivergent thing here of making it about me, ha ha ha, uh, you know, crippled and creative is in my bio. Like, those two things are, I, I think about the, again, Miming here, listeners, the swear jar of the John mentions the Paralympics, but the Paralympics being a perfect example, it's got a social model ethos and a medical model foundation, and those things will always be in conflict. Unless you create a classification system that like depends on what level of spasticity the CP has that day, which functionally you can't really do in the sport, then, you know, you have to live with those conflicts. I think that, Jen, that that's that difference between what you put in your bio versus what you say to the, what you would say in a different context, uh, medical or otherwise. That's a really important one because we're using disability as an administrative category, as a legal category, as a political category, as a kind of personal identity one. And that when we're kind of referring to two models, that's also why I'd be skeptical of like one model applying applying perfectly because it's going to have different different meanings in each place and that's um that definitely contributes to the to the messiness but that's that's a great that's a great example that you gave well thank you so much for your time we uh andy and i both have this thing every week where we name our 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 crip and sometimes if if we're feeling pessimistic our our anti-crip of the week and i'm curious if you have a crip of the week for me no, thanks, John. Um, we were talking about disability media. I'd recently read a couple of newsletters from Lucy Webster, who writes The Great of You from Down Here. And I think she was speaking really well to some of the these personal contradictions of um, ah, there's more attention to disability media, uh, but I've got a lot of complicated stuff going on in my life. And um these kind of public and private things. It's it's so important that people talk about that um and show show both sides. It's really it's really honest, it's really refreshing, um refreshing take. And she was she was naming and describing some things that I felt so you kind of shout out to her work. Yeah. I, she's got a name for the newsletter that that, that is sort of like the when I mean, you have that I wish I'd come up with that. <laughs> yeah, no, you do. You think you mentioned that you have that jealousy? Jealousy about the title of you from a, down, a minor down one, here. A minor great, one, great title. Uh, yeah, minor you... one. Yeah, so it seems like is it really minor? I don't know. Seems severe, severe, severe. Yeah, yeah. Those damn former yeah. BBCers and their their talent for naming things. I guess. Um, well, thanks so much, Peter, and uh, I hope. Uh, I hope your holiday season treats you well. No, thanks. Thanks so much, Sean. Don't don't um forget to tell people to find find me more on disability debrief if they sign up. Uh sign up there and I was doing a fundraising as well to to grow it even further next year. So um if you give if you give a 
if you give it exactly, exactly, yeah, that is precisely, that's precisely, precisely my plan. I think it's the, the best way that I can contribute at the, at the moment and it's powered on a pay-as-you-can basis. Um, but I hope people find it interesting and engaging and I'd really love to hear, love to hear what people think of it. Wonderful. Okay, John, do we want to do Crip of the Week? I think my Crip of the Week is a disabled journalist and, and creative called uh, Dev Ramswak, who wrote some really good work, uh, continues to. Uh, they wrote some really good work, but most recently for Extra Magazine. Uh, uh, Extra is a LGBTQ publication with some, with some wonderful writers and editors. I initially got uh, connected with Dev's work by interviewing them, but they wrote recently about um, disability community and safety and COVID and the pandemic for extra. And I just found that um, really, um, I don't, I, I don't identify within, uh, you know, a, a queer identity or LGBTQ plus identity at all. Um, uh, and, and, you know, I don't think the title of ally is mine to take. You know, I, I'm not looking for, for cookies here, but I, I just think that their way of talking, their honesty and, 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 and bluntness about talking about disability um, and, and intersectionality within that identity um, is really, um, is really valuable. I mean, I, I put their article in my newsletter, so. Uh, that's just, yeah, that's uh, Dev's my crip of the week. Nice. I think I'm going to, I'm going to give one with the hope that in the coming year, this person continues to try to do the things that they <laughs> promise. And that's Joe Biden. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, we know he's got a stutter, so he's, he's in the community. He, we actively talked about that during the campaign. Uh, but I think they finished the year with some pretty good stuff. I mean, they, they've certainly have, are still fighting some political battles, but there's been some really great things that have gone through. Um, and I hope that in the coming year, they, they keep pushing for things like equal or uh, better pay wages. And um, particularly as the pandemic comes around and trying to help people, particularly disabled folks, stay with their head above the water. So. That's who my Crip of the Week is. And that's yeah. it for us for the year, right? We're going to take, you and I are going to take a couple of weeks off and we'll come back to it yep. in mid-January. So, John, fantastic having you here. I'm, I'm excited to see what we do in the 2023. And you have a fantastic holiday you as well i i keep telling people in my life to stay warm because they're mostly in this cold part of the world but i guess stay temperature regulated we'll we'll see you next year absolutely see you john see you everybody bye disability movement etc is a blank owl production you can find out more about what we're doing including past episodes, show notes, and transcripts at blankowl.com. 
The music for this episode was composed by Adrian Doc Blust. If you'd like to support our efforts with Blank Owl, head over to support.blankowl.com. Hope you all join us next time. <laughs>